We are, we just finished the part of Acts that we were looking at for this year, last week. Um, in a couple of weeks, we're going to start a 13-part series through the book of Revelation. Um, but in preparation, not in preparation for that, but in the two weeks leading up to that, we're going to spend two weeks looking at the topic of assurance of salvation. And that's what we're doing this morning. So let's open up in prayer as we come to God's word together. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we can have confidence to come before you as our Father, not because of our good deeds or a high standard that we have attained, but because of what Jesus Christ has done once for all on our behalf. Lord, we thank you that you are a God whose promises are not um, uncertain or unstable. We thank you that we can take you at your word every time. And so, Lord, as we look at uh, this important topic of, of assurance, we pray that you might not only nurture our souls, uh, but you, you might challenge us that we might examine ourselves to be certain that we actually are in the faith. So as we look to your word, teach us, correct us where need be, and encourage us in what you have done for us in Christ. We ask in his name, amen. In the last couple of weeks, there's been some pretty significant announcements by significant Christian leaders. Some of them you may have seen, even if you don't have heard of either of these people, I'm sure that you've experienced something along the lines at some point in your life. Like for example, Mark Driscoll recently called garbage some of the things that he taught um, quite and wrote a lot of books about. Or even more recently, Joshua Harris, the guy who wrote I Kiss Dating Goodbye, not only announced his divorce, but made a public statement, I am not a Christian. Now, sometimes this might be people that you know, or there might be other people that you think of in the same sort of scenario, and you think, if this happens to those guys, what hope is there for me? How can I know that I won't do the same? Now, because we believe the Bible is not only without error, but also completely sufficient, meaning it talks about everything we need to know for life and godliness, which includes it talks on this topic. Can we have assurance of salvation? And it does speak very positively that we can indeed have assurance. But also partnered alongside that are some very serious challenges and warnings. Examine yourself to make sure that you actually are in the faith. So over these next couple of weeks today, we're going to be looking at does the Bible teach about assurance? We're also going to look at some of the passages that might seem to indicate otherwise. And next week, we're going to look at how can I be assured in my salvation? And also look at what are some of the false things that people place their trust in that shouldn't give us assurance in our salvation. When it comes to salvation, I think there's basically four different types of people. There are those who are saved and they know it. There are those who are not saved and they know it. 
There are those who are saved but are not confident that they are. And then the saddest one of all, those who are not saved but for some wrong reason they think that they are saved. So the material that we were going to be covering this morning is firstly we're going to look at four different responses to the gospel. We're going to look at what the gospel of John has to say in regards to assurance. We're going to see that it's actually something taught by every single New Testament author. And because we want to do the, the topic justice, we're going to look at some of the most common passages that people would look at and say, hang on, this one says something completely different. So starting first with the parable of the soils, four different responses. It's probably my favourite parable, favourite teaching of Jesus with regards to salvation and right and wrong responses to the gospel. You see, there's one thing in common in this parable. There is one seed, the same seed that is spread everywhere, the same seed which has the same inherent power within itself to produce the fruit, but using the analogy of four different types of soil, Jesus teaches to say that people will respond to this same powerful message in four different ways. It's a seed which is designed to produce fruit. But as we look at these four different types of soil, there is only one of them that actually produces the fruit that it was designed to produce. Firstly, you see the soil that had fallen on the path, the area where it is, where it is hardened from people walking across it. And Jesus in verse 19, it says, it's like the person who doesn't understand it. The Bible tells us that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. They just don't understand the gospel and immediately the evil one takes it away. The second he describes is like a seed which has fallen on rocky ground, which unlike the first one, there is some initial signs of what looks like it's heading in the right direction. It says, receives it, immediately springs up with great joy. But then in its explanation, it says, but it had no root. There was a plant of some form which came up, something that had all of the early indications, but it had no root. It had no connection to the source of life. And as a result, when troubles in life came up, it withers away and falls away. The third response to the gospel, Jesus said, is like a seed which falls amongst thorns. Much like the rocky ground, again, you see some initial signs that all look like it's heading in the right direction. But it is choked by the weeds, which Jesus says is the cares of this world. Like it shows all that initial enthusiasm, but as life goes on, everything else just all of a sudden becomes far more important and this so-called trusting and walking with Jesus becomes less and less. And significantly, Jesus says, it is unfruitful. The very thing that the seed was designed to produce, it did not produce. The fourth one and the only one which bears any fruit is that good soil. And it doesn't just produce some fruit, it says it produces 
much fruit. And that's worth drawing our attention to this as we look, Jesus talks about four different responses to the same gospel message. Three out of those four in the beginnings have the same early sign that this is going the right way. But only one of them actually proves to be the real deal. A genuine connection to the life giver, genuinely producing fruit, showing the evidence that life is really there. And Jesus realized it's an important point. He says, he who has ears, take care that you listen. Take care that you listen, that not everyone who might have the appearances of the Christian life may not actually have the Christian life. It's not saying that if you behave this way, then you must be this soil. It's rather the other way around, say, if you are this, then that will express itself this way. For example, if you are the good soil, then you will abound in fruit forevermore. So there's a bit of a paradox in the, in the parable. There is a certainty which it speaks of for some, yet alongside that, amongst others who have all of the external appearances of exactly the same, it comes with a warning to examine. As we look further into this idea of certainty, John's Gospel is probably one of the clearest Gospel accounts that speaks on this topic. Beginning with the most famous verse in the book of John, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. One of the things I don't like in some English translation where they go, should not, sounds like maybe they will, maybe they won't. The old language was like, will say shall not, because that is what is intended here. Whoever believes in him will not, shall not perish, but on the other hand, have, and that's written in the present tense, have, those who believe, have now eternal life. Just look 20 verses later. We're going to be going through quite quickly a lot of verses this morning. Whoever believes in the Son has, present tense right now, eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Jesus regularly says, he who believes has eternal life, not when they die, not in the future, has eternal life now. Keep going on to John chapter 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That's a significant three things in that one verse. Whoever believes has eternal life here and now, will not go into judgment, and has already passed from death to life to life all of these things guaranteed to those who are genuinely have faith in Christ because this is the will of God for them as Jesus says in John chapter 6 all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me and this is the will of him who sent me 
that I shall lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but raise it on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is not just an idea of ours. This is God's will, the will of the Almighty God who does everything he sets out to achieve, that they will have eternal life, they will be raised up by Christ on the last day. And that's not the full extent of what's in John's Gospel. But to give you an overview, John says, everyone whom the Father calls to Christ will come to Christ. And of every one of them, of those verses we looked at, it says, will never be judged, will never perish, will be saved, have already passed from death to life, have eternal life, will be raised on the last day, will never be cast out, and no one will or can snatch them away in John chapter 10. That's a pretty significant summary. That's a pretty significant confidence booster if you are in Christ that the one who has secured your salvation has made some pretty bold statements about his commitment to that. But is this just John's little specialty topic? What we see is it's actually something taught by every single New Testament author. Now we're not going to look at content from every New Testament author just because of time, but if you um, want the details I've left out, then I'll happily pass them on. Nor are we looking at every single New Testament book. For example, in Mark's Gospel, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father, children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. So not one who gives up all for the gospel will not receive eternal life in the age to come. Luke in his gospel, nevertheless, this is Jesus speaking, do not rejoice in this that your spirits have been subject to you, but rejoice that your names are, present tense, not will be, your names are already written in heaven. The Apostle Paul, who writes a number of the letters in our New Testament, says, those whom he predestined, that is those he chose, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Just let that one sink in for a little bit. Every single person that God has chosen, he will call. And every single person that God has chosen and called, he will justify. Meaning, he will, if they come to faith in Christ, they declare the faith, he, they will be declared right in his sight. And every single one who he has called, whom he has justified, he will also glorify to go to be with him. Nowhere in that chain from beginning to end is there any drop-off. I'm going to come back to the book of Hebrews because that's where the most difficult passage comes. So when we're looking at difficult passages, we'll come to Hebrews. As James is writing, when he's talking about the, the necessity of faith and works to coexist, that faiths are a, an essential, sorry, works are an essential evidence that a faith that is genuine. 
He gives the example of Abraham. He says, Abraham believed God and it was then, present tense, granted to him as righteousness. Peter, in his first letter, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I think Peter was pretty sure about it, wasn't he? The inheritance which is imperishable, nothing can destroy it, it's not even fading in any sense, it's being kept in heaven by God for you and is being guarded by the very power of God. Jude also picks up on this idea that we are kept for Jesus in his letter. When it speaks about those who are genuinely in Christ, the Bible doesn't speak about them being as those who've got better odds. But those who are in Christ can have a certainty. Jesus and all of the New Testament authors make that very clear. But what do we do about passages that seem to say otherwise? Because there are passages that if read on their own, you would think, this seems completely at odds of what Steve's been saying this morning. Sometimes when people look at difficult topics, they look at all of the passages that point towards the point that they're trying to make, and they, then they're completely silent on the parts of scriptures that seem to say otherwise. But if something is genuinely to be true and received as God's word, it kind of needs to be able to stand up to the rest of scriptures. So as we look at some of the most commonly used passages in objection, then it's important to understand their context and what they are actually saying. Now, if you've ever thought about this particular topic, or if you're already thinking, man, Steve's saying stuff I don't agree with, I guarantee the main passage that's coming to your head is Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 and 6. But before we even look at Hebrews chapter 6, it's worth seeing what the author has said three chapters beforehand. The writer of the Hebrews says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So the writer to the Hebrews says, what causes someone to fall away? A believing heart? A regenerate heart? No, he says, an evil, unbelieving heart caused you to fall away from the living God. And then just a few verses later it says, you want to know how to know who has actually come to share in Christ? It says, those who hold their original confidence to the end. So there's a bit of background from the author who says what appears to be on the surface the most controversial and conflicting things on this topic. Hebrews 6, 4-6. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift 
and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and have then fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now I've got to say as a straight up that I'm not going to have as much time to unpack all of the details of that so if there's still questions certainly do come and ask. But when you hear that, if you just read those verses, you would say that is clear as day. A genuine Christian falls away and they're never going to have any chance whatsoever to come back to God. But it's worth noting in that passage, all of those terms which the author uses are never once used anywhere else in scripture to describe salvation. He speaks about those who have been enlightened. He's definitely talking about people who are in the church. Talking about people who have understood, they've comprehended the gospel. They actually get it. They know what it's about. That have tasted the heavenly gift, shared or partaken in the spirit. Now they've been there in the the community of the the believing people of God. They've seen the spirit of God at work in those people. They've enjoyed the love and the fellowship of God's people. They've tasted it. They've experienced it. They've seen it firsthand. I remember when I was growing up, my parents would bribe me to eat foods that I wouldn't want to eat. Like, I'll give you 20 cents if you have a mouthful of this. I can tell you I partook of a number of things for the benefit of 20 cents that I made no commitment to for the rest of my life these people have understood the gospel they've experienced the spirit of God at work they've seen the power of God at work they've experienced the the love and fellowship of the community of God's people every single thing that you would think you would need that would point someone to respond faithfully to Jesus Christ, to trust their life to him, but they didn't. They were kind of in the, the pinnacle experience of, man, if you expose this, surely. And he says, it's impossible to restore to pen- repentance those who've had full access to such things and still won't place their trust in Jesus If they're not going to trust him at that point, they're not going to trust him at at a much lesser experience. And if you think he's speaking to about believers in those verses, I would encourage you to read the entirety of Hebrews chapter 6. We'll look at some of the most significant parts of Hebrews 6. Directly after the verse that we just read, verses 7 and 8, For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those who for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. That's straight after it. Sounds just like what we heard in Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the sower, didn't it? The only difference was in one case there was a seed that produced fruit or didn't produce fruit. Now here it's talking about a a rain that has come across all of the land, But in some cases, it just produces thorns and it was burnt. But in other places, it produced fruit and received the blessing of God. 
Just two verses after this, in this controversial chapter, the author says, though we speak in this way, these things that he just talked about, yet in your case, beloved, we are sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So he's spoken about those things in verses 4 and 6. He says, yet we are sure these things don't apply to you. Regarding to the Christians to whom he's writing, we are sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. And so if he's contrasting that to things that belong to salvation, he's saying verses 4 and 6 are not speaking about a saved people. Well, if they, verses 4 to 6, if they don't apply to the Christians to whom he's writing, what does? He goes on to say, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. And then his big draw card comes out just a few verses later, verses 17 to 19. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. He says, I'm going to give you something even more convincing. God has guaranteed this. God's guarantees are pretty good. He's guaranteed it with an oath. We can have strong encouragement. We can have certainty in what Christ has done for us. Those who have fled to him for refuge have a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. So when you think about the rest of chapter 6, which often doesn't come up in the discussions, verses 4 to 6 seem really out of place. Chapter 6 of Hebrews probably is one of the strongest chapters in all of the Bible showing the confidence that those who are definitely in Christ can have. The second passage is worth looking at, surprisingly, comes from John's Gospel. The vine and the branches. Some will see there in verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. So does that mean there's some that just get thrown away? Yet if you look at that same passage and read the verses before and after, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is who bears much fruit. Jesus says, you want to know who is in connection with me? It's the one who bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, so he's putting a contrast here, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples." So Jesus says very clearly, if you are in connection with me, you will 
bear fruit. You will prove to be my disciples by your fruit. We shouldn't be at all surprised. He says, those who don't abide in me, those who are not connected with me will be thrown away and burnt. Of course they won't. If if you're not connected to the source of life, death is the natural course. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus speaks about it. He says, by their fruit you will know them. He says, a good fruit, good tree can't produce bad fruit, a bad tree can't produce good fruit. All of this comes before that scary passage where he said, there's going to be many who come before me and saying, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this in your name? And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. There are some difficult parts in the Bible that say that there are people who genuinely believe they are saved. They're amongst the community of a church family that he says, I never knew you. And lastly, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 4, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Now, Paul has written to the church in Galatia. He's even preached there in Galatia. He's made a strong case for that we are justified by faith and by faith alone. Yet there were these people who came into the church, the Judaizers, saying that, yeah, you're just by faith, but you also have to be circumcised. So they've moved from, they have departed from the message of grace, that it's all about what God does and added to it to be a combination of grace and works. Once again, we find it in the context of a passage that actually speaks about certainty. So what do we do with all this? Well, there's no doubt the Bible speaks that if you are definitely in Christ, that you can have assurance. But assurance does not mean being you go be spiritually lazy. So you just cruise control for the rest of your life. And I would put it to you that if that is your mindset, that cool, I don't need to worry about anything, I'm secure, I'd actually question if that is the mindset of someone who actually has been born again. One of the dangers, or two of the dangers, about speaking on insurance are these. One is that you could hear that as a Christian think, oh, great, it doesn't matter how I live now. Yes, it does. The New Testament is full of exhortations of how we should live, calling us to live lives worthy of the gospel. If your sin was so abhorrent that it required the death of Jesus Christ, he doesn't want you playing around with it anymore either. And the second danger of speaking on this topic is that it can give a false sense of security to someone who thinks they're Christian but actually are not. Next week we're going to look at some of the false reasons that people think they might be saved that are not reasons to base our confidence upon. We're going to look at how we can be sure. But if you are a child of God, you can have absolute confidence in the promises of God that he has given to you. That the power of God for salvation is not overthrown by your sin, 
by your mistakes, by the enemy, by your surroundings. Rather, in the middle of all of our struggles, we can give thanks that God's promises are unchanging. But in order for that to be a precious promise for us, then we need to be sure that we actually are in the faith. A number of times in the scriptures we're warned. Paul to the Corinthians says, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Christ Jesus is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Peter gives a pretty similar warning. Therefore, brothers, be all the more sure, diligent, to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you'll never fail. He's spoken about things prior to this verse. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Whether or not you are right with God is a life and death question. It's not something that you take lightly. It's not something you just presume upon. It's like, oh, yeah, I ticked. I was this Christian on a census, therefore I must be. Now, the last thing I'd want to do is to have any Christian uncertain about their salvation if they are indeed a Christian. I have days where I might not feel like it. I have days when the way I live doesn't look like it. And if you're worried about your sin and you're grieving about your sin, that's probably a good sign because the natural man usually doesn't care about their sin. That being said, if you are not certain about where you stand with God, that's a conversation worth having with someone, with me or someone else that you know in the church. But if you are in Christ... May this be a deep nurturing to your soul to know that in the the middle of all of our struggles, God's word never fails. His salvation wasn't like, oh, I didn't know you were going to do that. No, I'm pulling out. Remember what Paul said to the church in Rome? Every single one that that he chose, he called. Every single one that he chose and he called, he justified. Every single one that he chose, called and justified, he glorified. Not the slightest hint of drop off from start to finish. In the middle of all of that predestined to glorified, we struggle with the world in which we live in, a broken, corrupt world. We struggle with the desires of our flesh and with sin. We struggle with hurt and pain, disappointment. But rather than that causing us to doubt the security which God has provided for us, may that be something that causes us to cling on and give him thanks that all of this will not separate us from the love of God. But if you've heard this and you've never come to trust in God, Wasn't that a joy to know that this God who is calling you to himself is saying, you've rebelled against me by choosing to live your own way even though I've given you everything. 
I sent my son Jesus to die on the cross so the offence of your sin could be dealt with so that we could be back in right relationship again. He says, if you come to me in faith, you have eternal life. You have passed from death to life. You will not come into judgment. You will not perish. You have life eternal. So if you've ever been pondering whether or not you'd like to trust Jesus, you've certainly heard from Jesus and and God through the New Testament as well. If you come to him, he's sticking with you. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are faithful. Because Lord, I know how frequently I am unfaithful. God, there are times when my life looks far from a life that is worthy of the high calling of the gospel. Lord, I thank you for your your grace and your patience with me and with all of us. Lord, we don't want to take advantage of your grace and your patience. Uh, Lord, we want to live a life that brings you honour. Like when you talked about predestining us, you predestined us for a reason. It said that we might be conformed to the image of your Son. So Lord, help us to keep pressing in deeply to you, knowing that if we are genuinely connected to Christ, if we are in Christ, as the term that Paul likes to use so frequently for those who are Christians, those who are in Christ, connected to the one, the giver of life, then you are committed to us. That you have committed that all of those who are in Christ will not perish, but you will raise them up on the last day and you have granted them eternal life. We give you thanks for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's uh, give thanks for what Jesus has done for us in bringing us eternal life. And we're going to use these symbols of bread and uh, fruit of the vine, grape juice.